Hey everybody, you're listening to Living Theology with the Luby Brothers, a podcast dedicated to understanding and living out the gospel. The gospel that brings us to God and transforms us into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. We are your hosts, Doug, Greg, and Mark Luby. Great. So today we're continuing in our series on hard questions about the Christian faith. And Greg, would you introduce for us our question today? Yeah, the main way that I've heard the question that we're talking about today posed is why is there so much hypocrisy in the church? So that's what we're going to be answering. Uh, let's just start off then by, Doug, could you could you give us a little more context? Maybe um, what's the significance of hypocrisy? Maybe how has this been played out some even in special ways in the church? Yeah, one of the things is that you don't have to be around the church long to see people who are really hypocrites. And, yeah, just that it's common. We see that in the NAVs, we see, which is the organization that Greg and I worked for, that we all grew up as children in. We see that in our own local churches. We see that in, like, famous pastors and just... One of the things that we have to acknowledge as Christians is that we do see this issue. It's not like somebody's just making it up. We really have to deal with it. I think of when we were growing up in Colorado Springs and the megachurch pastor, um, it became clear that he had been going to a prostitute and doing a bunch of drugs and he had been doing this for a long time. And it was something that was really shocking in our uh, city. And I remember thinking, how could he possibly do this? And went and talked to dad and asked him, dad, how can this happen? And dad's response was, Doug, I'm glad that this time it wasn't me. I was like, huh, what do you mean by that? And he made the point, like, okay, these specific things aren't temptations for me. I'm not feeling tempted to go to a prostitute or to take drugs, but there are areas in my life that I really do see temptation. And if I would give in a little bit to each of those today, and then more tomorrow, and then beyond that, I could see myself going off and really doing something that would discredit all of what I'm doing for the Lord. And I remember just being surprised by that. I remember Jerry Bridges, who I think for us is one of the people that we think of as one of the most holy people that we know. And his comment is, given the right situation, there is no sin that I would not commit. And I think as I've seen more of my motivations, my sin, I I can agree with that statement. Even we were playing some games as a NAV staff team last week. It's one called Secret Voldemort, which is kind of like Avalon. But basically you're trying to figure out who the bad guys are, who the good guys are. And I realized that I love playing those games because I like trying to deceive and trick people. 
And if that's something that I find joy or pleasure in, that could be really bad as a pastor or in ministry. If I would indulge that, oh, I can see that capacity for evil in myself. Um, so I think just as the initial statement, we see that kind of evil in the church, hypocrisy, and I see the capacity for that in myself. Doug, could you start us off by giving what would be your answer? Then you're having a conversation with someone and say, you know what? My issue with Christianity is there just seems to be so much hypocrisy in the church. How do you answer a question? How do you answer sort of that frustration or that difficulty or that even just tension about how could I join something like this when I've been hurt or I've seen people be hurt or I've seen this type of hypocrisy? Yeah. One of the things that I want to do is first just ask a follow-up question if they'd give me a little more clarity on what they're talking about not because i need proof from them but it may be that they're talking about some famous pastor off at a distance or it might be that they're talking about their own pastor in their church or someone who's part of their elder board or abuse that they've personally suffered and the answer doesn't change on the situation but even how you go about it does need to be more gentle more tender even like more um apologetic if they're talking about something they've personally gone through so first of all I'll normally ask if they would be willing to share a little more of kind of what they mean but if they're talking more generally about hypocrisy one of the first things I'll do is say Yes, you're right. There is a lot of hypocrisy. It makes you angry. It makes me angry. And it makes God angry. During um, a conversation with non-believers, my buddy Jeff Taylor answered a question that way. And it just lowered the tension in the room because he wasn't just trying to defend all Christians all the time. Because he doesn't know what happened and whatever situation was going on. But just to acknowledge, yes, this hypocrisy angers me and God. Hmm. Um, one of the passages that I think is interesting is First Peter, because he give because Peter gives four places where people are submit to submit to people in authority, and the first submission that he gives is to the general public to submit to the government. Then he has slaves or servants to submit to their masters which today people normally compare to worker boss relationships and then he asks wives to submit to their husbands and he asks the younger people in the church to submit to the elders the like leaders in the church and i think what's interesting is for the government and for uh, the like masters or the bosses he doesn't give any caution but for husbands he says be understanding and kind to your wives otherwise god will not listen to your prayers so there's a warning there and then in first peter 5 when he's talking to the elders he actually starts by giving the elders a bunch of commands and only after that asks people to submit to them and I think what stands out to me from that is he's giving specific cautions 
to husbands and to the elders of churches to not abuse this power that he doesn't give to the government or to like bosses. And I think that's because there's something in those relationships of husband and wife in the relationships of pastors and elders and the church that's even more dear to God's heart. So there is something of an abuse in those contexts that I think is even worse and that we see that and that this matters to God. I think the other thing that I would bring up is just there is a difference between an evil hypocrisy of someone who's claiming to be following Christ and then is abusing people and just the general foolish self-righteous hypocrisy of someone who feels like they're better than you because they go to church but you can just see it makes no difference in their life Hmm. and I think it's helpful to distinguish between the two of those the way I thought of that, Doug, with like the evil and you said general hypocrisy. Yeah. I, th- I think I've thought about it as almost like repentant and unrepentant um, hypocrisy. There's one that's like, I recognize this is an issue and like I'm working through it. And there's one that's like, I'm, I'm, I'm not recognizing it. I don't see it. And I'm not actually trying in any way. Like I am trying. It's just unrepentant. Like. I'm going to keep going about this and I do intend evil. And I think those are helpful to distinguish because I fall, I find in myself a hypocrisy. I find in myself mm-hmm. an, a desire to do one thing and yet I end up doing another or I proclaim one thing and then I end up failing and actually caring and loving for others the way I should be or honoring God in an area of my life. And that in a sense is a, a hypocrisy where I kind of have to fight against so I think that's a helpful distinction of just like an evil, unrepentant hypocrisy and like a general, this is part of the human condition and we're all going to struggle with this to some extent. And I think p- yeah. part of even with that is just the question of like, what's your ultimate motive? What are you ultimately seeking? Because I think with the evil hypocrisy, usually your greatest desire, your hope, your aim is at the core of it, even though you'd probably say on the surface, it's not God, it's not knowing God, it's not closeness to God. You're more concerned with people's approval of you or the way that you come across to others you're more concerned with power or something along those lines and so i think that's when that really becomes an issue that you're kind of using god on the surface but what you're ultimately seeking at the core of it is something outside of god and that's Mm -hmm. where a lot of the evil hypocrisy comes from and one thing that i've heard is the kind of main thing that's turning younger people off to Christianity is seeing hypocrisy in their parents and they say that they see their parents go to church and even just act one way at church but then in their personal life they act a totally different way and I think that that's been one of the main things that's making people think like I don't want to have anything to do with this if yeah, that's what yeah. Christianity means. I don't want to just go put on a face and then live a totally different mm-hmm. life where something else is more important to you. Yeah. Outside of One that. clarification for what I was saying is that I would consider like that unrepentant, just dual hypocrisy of like a parent who goes to church, calls themselves a Christian, but then lives for money for their sports team. Still not the 
evil hypocrisy, mm-hmm. but just a general like hypocrisy. And so there's a sense in which that's wrong, evil, foolish. But then there's, but just I think there's something of just that self righteous hypocrisy that I would distinguish from an evil hypocrisy where people are actually going and abusing yeah. people. Mm-hmm. And then there's also, I think what you're saying, Mark, an unrepent or a repenting hypocrisy that I see in my life of, oh, I don't live up to my own standards. I'm not as kind and gentle as I want to be. And sometimes I'm not even aware of that and not repenting because I don't even see it. And then other times I do see it, but... Something I've been thinking about lately is the idea that, and I don't know if this is helpful or accurate, but I want to get your guys' thoughts on it, that like hypocrisy or sin is always hypocrisy for a Christian. Mm -hmm. Because if hypocrisy is pretending to be something you're not, um, then sin is always hypocrisy. Because like on the truest level, who is a Christian? A Christian is crucified with Christ and raised with him in his resurrection, we live according to the flesh, or we live according to the spirit and not according to the flesh. And works of the flesh are evident, sexual morality, impurity, covetousness, selfish desire, and on and on. Um, fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And I think we have like a desire in our culture for this idea of authenticity, living true to who you are. And it's just kind of fascinating to me because I'm like, I think for a Christian, the only way you can be authentic and not hypocritical pretending you're something you're not, if you're truly a Christian crucified with Christ and raised with him, is actually loving and obeying God. And any moment I step into living outside of that, I'm actually living a lie. I'm putting on a mask and saying, oh, this is actually who I am. This is my truest identity. I'm angry and selfish, and my life is for the things of this world and my own pride and my own ego. And that's like actually a lie. I'm being a hypocrite at that moment, which is why I think Mm -hmm. it's even like problematic when sometimes Christians will get this idea of, it's okay for me to vent my anger or it's okay for me to use like coarse language or swear in certain situations because I'm just being raw and authentic. It's like, well, maybe you're being a complete hypocrite in that moment because what you're saying is my truest identity. uh, The truest levels of who I am are these things i'm venting this and that's being true to myself but it's like maybe that's not being true to yourself maybe being true to yourself is acting in accordance with what god's word says about who you are and uh your identity and how you should live and not in accordance with that mm-hmm. and repenting for the ways that i am not living in accordance with that yeah and that's kind of with my answer i go along those lines of how do we solve this and it i usually do start out by just saying that hypocrisy is is not just a christian problem it's a human problem if any of us would i think is it c.s lewis that talks about if any of us would wear a tape recorder saying the ways that people ought to act and should do things and we measure that against our lives we'd be crushed by our own standard of how people ought to act and live and one one just funny example I have of that is just driving. Whenever you drive and someone cuts you off or isn't paying attention and does something dumb or doesn't start going at a light because they're checking their phone, you immediately get so uh-huh. mad at them yeah. and assign the worst motives. And it's like, how dare they? But I think that all of us, 
have done that many times where we've been the one who hasn't started or we've made a mistake and in those times we expect that people to show us grace or we always are able to justify it all it's just distracted and i think that's just one area that i see myself being a total hypocrite often yeah and i say that most people yeah. probably would uh do the same thing with that but yeah so it's a human problem but what I usually go right to is that it is against God's heart and constantly throughout the scriptures, you're seeing Jesus criticize hypocrisy and go right against it. And so I think a life of hypocrisy is a total distortion of what's God's desire and God's will is. And so I'm not going to credit that distortion to what, uh, that distortion of God's will to being God's will, because people act that way we all have sin and things that we wrestle with that's a distortion of god's desire for us and so like you were saying doug that that's not god's heart when that's yeah. how people are acting but then i think about what is the antidote to hypocrisy as we are saying we see it in all of us and i really believe that the antidote to hypocrisy is repentance and matthew 3 john the baptist says bear fruit and keep him with repentance as believers were mm -hmm. called to live a life of repentance of confessing sin of seeing our need for the gospel seeing our need for the grace of god and what happens as you become as you grow more and more in your walk with christ is you don't think of yourself as better than others you actually see more and more how much you need the grace of god how much you're totally dependent yeah. on the grace of god your awareness of the weight of your sin grows it doesn't become less and so a uh, person a sign of maturity as a christian is the fruit of the spirit mark like you were talking about it's love joy peace patience kindness gentleness faithfulness self-control and so you're gentle with others you're patient you're kind you're loving you're showing others the grace that God extends you. And so a disconnect in that uh, comes from not understanding the gospel, not understanding what the core mm -hmm. message of Christianity is. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9 says, we're saved by grace, not a result of works that no one can boast. And mm -hmm. so the gospel really negates boasting or thinking of ourselves as better than others or thinking that we're superior to anyone else and so as christians we're called to be totally honest and open about our own struggles and that yeah the antidote to hypocrisy is repentance saying yeah i'm messed up i'm totally dependent my whole life on the grace of god and yeah. and what as i was giving that example earlier of parents and kids is the antidote to this isn't perfection you know, the answer uh -huh. to being hypocrites isn't, okay, I have to be perfect. The answer to it is I live a life of repentance in front of my kids. And so when I'm upset with Jackson and Wesley in the future, I don't have to go pretend. Or if I am sinning, I don't have to go cover it up, pretend it's not there so that I don't set a bad example. I repent. I say, hey, dad is a sinner and he needs the grace of God. He's totally dependent on it. And that that negates it you know <laughs> then they see okay yeah i i need the grace of god and i can do that too and so that's how we're called to live as christians and so i think a lack of repentance is a sign of one of two things um and this is in all of our lives it can be just immaturity and not really mm -hmm. understanding the grace of god not really understanding god's love 
um, not really understanding the life we have in Christ. And so there's a growth. And as Christians, we are hypocrites, but I think anyone can fit right into that, you know. And But then another potential reason for hypocrisy is what we've been talking about is also is there's many who are identifying as Christians who aren't and who have unregenerated heart, who claim the name of Christ and yet are wolves in sheep's clothing. And the Bible talks about this all the time, First John 2, where it says they went out from us, but they didn't belong to us. If they would have belonged to us, they would have remained with us, but their going out shows that none of them truly belong to us. And it says there's people who are in the church who identify as Christians that over time will go out showing that they never really were Christians. They claim the name of Christ, but Christ wasn't their ultimate treasure. They didn't have a new heart. And that's, there's going to be a lot of people who aren't Christians in and among churches, in Christian circles. And one way that manifests is people using Christianity as a club and looking down on others because their greatest joy is their own superiority looking down on others and they're just using god to build up their reputation or um other things along those lines yeah i think that's i think that's really good greg both what you and doug have said i think captures so much of what i was going to say which makes this easier for me so i'll fill in just a little bit of i guess what i would finish off with um and I think what I would finish it by saying is it's the clear expectation of both Jesus and the writers of the New Testament that there will be hypocrisy among the church. And so I think if we disregard Christianity because we say, you know, there's hypocrisy among Christians, I would say don't disregard it for that. Like, Let that be an affirmation of what the New Testament writers clearly told us was going to happen, what Jesus himself said was going to happen. And so to give a little sample of that, Matthew 7, and to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, he says in Matthew seven twenty one, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And this is a sobering text because what it's saying is there are people who will say, Lord, Lord. They claim Jesus. They say, I am a Christian. I'm following Jesus. Jesus is my Lord. And yet there are people who say that who would be people among our church who Jesus will say to on the day of judgment when everything is brought before him, I never knew you. I never knew you. You never had a genuine and real relationship with me. It doesn't matter what things you did. Um, I don't care that you did these many mighty works. You never actually knew me and so depart from me. And that, like, if that's not sobering for us, and if that doesn't, I, I think, inspire or stir in something of us to test ourselves and say, okay, Lord, where am I faking it? Where am I not living honestly? Like, I don't know what does, but there we see it's it's the actual expectation of Jesus that there will be among his people those who are faking it. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned this, Greg, the idea of a, a wolf in sheep's clothing. That's a metaphor that's used, and that's such an apt one for hypocrisy because a wolf is there to devour the sheep, and yet they dress like a sheep, like a hypocrite puts on a mask to act. And the idea is that there are, 
the wolves and sheep's clothing among the church. And so Paul, then another example of why we should expect this, uh, Acts 20, verses 26 to 33, Paul's leaving a group of Christians, and in the midst of his discussion with them, he says in verse 26, um, Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. And this is where it really comes in. He says in verse 28, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men twist, speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. And so he's saying there will be, there will be those who arise from among you drawing away disciples who are trying to do that. You mentioned uh, Peter in Second Peter 1, 3. False prophets also rose among the people, just as there are false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality. And because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation for long, from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. You mentioned the first, first John 1, Greg, how they went out because they weren't among us. If they were among us, they would have stayed. In 1 Corinthians 5, uh, Paul talks about how you're, those who are unrepentant in their sin are to be turned over. Um, and he says, there's a situation in Corinth where there's a sexual sin that he says, the, your, your type of sexual sin right here, a man has his father's mother. Not even the pagans allow this. And then he tells them in verse 11 or in verse 9 of 1 Corinthians 5, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy or the swindlers or idolaters, since then you would have to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reveler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? It is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. And Paul, I mean, he doesn't, he doesn't hold back. He's like, purge the evil person from among you. And this is the person who is in this unrepentant sin, this unrepentant hypocrisy saying, I'm a brother, I'm a Christian. And yet they're living a life that is so plainly opposed to that. And so I would say it's the expectation of the New Testament writers and of Christ himself that there will be sheep, there will be wolves in sheep clothing, there will be hypocrites. And I want to just even end it by saying, I think there's a special level of ugliness that comes with hypocrisy in the church. Um, mm -hmm. And to, to prove that, I will quote, first of all, Uncle Ben from uh, Spider-Man, where he says, with great power comes with great responsibility. He tells that to Spider-Man. Um, and that is like, you know, iconic moment. Great power comes great responsibility. But I actually think that's true, um, not because it's just in Spider-Man, but because it's actually, I think, in the scriptures. And I won't go to all the places now, but Hebrews 2 is a great example 
where um, the author of Hebrews says, you know, we have to pay much closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or obedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. Then it goes on. But Paul is essentially saying, you were given the Old Testament law. Every disobedience to the Old Testament law, there was a just retribution. Now you have a greater revelation. God himself has spoken to you and his son, Jesus. It doesn't get better than this. It doesn't get clearer than this. If there was punishment for disobeying the law, how great is the punishment for rejecting Christ himself, who is the clearer revelation? Uh, another passage, I'll go to just very briefly, and like I said, I won't get, I'll try not to get into too many, but uh, Luke Luke uh, 12 is a really fascinating one to look at some point, specifically the parable from verse 41 to 48, and it talks about the servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating, but the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating, and so... I think that one can throw people off when they hear it, but I think the idea is with greater uh, with greater revelation from God comes greater accountability. And that's why I think actually it's right to say of those in the church who are teachers, we ought to hold the highest level of accountability, which is why I think I'm, you know, like in the Catholic church, if you, or if you look at other denominations of some of these like sex scandal stuff that comes out, it's, it's horrendous. And it's painful and and it really is a tragedy. And I think we should hold our pastors and our church people to a higher standard than we hold our pop stars. Because we also have our pop stars who are coming out with their own sexual misconduct. There's, you know, a documentary about Michael Jackson that's uh, been coming out. And uh, you hear about some of these terrible things he does, which, which are right in line with complete hypocrisy of, you know, if you hear, I'm looking at the man in the mirror and I'm asking him to change, and some of these upbeat things, positive, along with rape, there's a pretty big disconnect. And some, you know, I did read in one article that some people said, you know, maybe that was part of his struggle with his own, like actually wanting himself to change and having some difficulty with that. Um, But just all that to say, I, I think it's okay to say there's a higher level of accountability for those who claim an explicit message of Christianity and have been given that. And um, so I think, yeah, there is there is a tragedy to that. But I think if we look deeper, we see, like you've said, Greg, what we're facing here is, is a problem that has a special manifestation in the church, perhaps. But at the end of the day, it's a human problem. And if it's, if it's a church problem, we can just get rid of church. If it's a human problem, we need a savior. And I would argue that yeah. at the core end of it is what we're facing in hypocrisy and sin and evil in these ways is we're facing a core fundamental human problem that lies at the bottom of every human heart. And if that's true, I don't think we do much by getting rid of the church. I think we actually need something more than that. I think we need a savior who's going to transform our hearts from being sinful, selfish, prideful, to being loving kind, patient, joyful, hopeful. Um, one 
Oh, sorry. Yeah, go for it. Yeah, one uh, example of that is Martin Luther King Jr. and the way that he fought um, for equal rights. And his approach wasn't saying looking at the people that identified as believing in God and Christians in America and saying, let's get rid of Christianity. He saw the way that uh, white people were basically treating black people. And he said, what's the root problem is they've lost touch with what the core of Christianity is. And so he appealed to get Mm -hmm. actually back into the roots of what Christianity is. And he says, let justice roll down like waters and righteousness, like a mighty stream. And so he's what he's referring to. And his approach was, we actually need to get to the root of what Christianity means and get rid of the distortion, which we've made it, which enables us to treat others so horrifically. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, Frederick Douglass made a similar argument because he talks about the Christianity of Christ versus the Christianity of this land. So as a man who had come out of slavery, who had seen the abuses that was even perpetuated by the church, he says there's a Christianity-ism, the Christianity of the United States that allows and tolerates the subjection of African Americans and treats them and calls them less than human, denying the image of God in them. But then there's also the Christianity of Christ who deals with, who cares for the poor and the brokenhearted. And I think just that idea there of there is this difference that Frederick Douglass saw between Christ and what he saw in the people who were around them. And it's a valid critique. And somebody's it's actually a helpful critique of the church in the U.S. as a whole that's given by the black church in America that sometimes we have such a view of let's get all of our theological points in order but then can disconnect theology from living it out in life and we can make that a separate thing. And as long as we are theological points are correct, then you're good to go. Mm. But what the black church would say is no does not work that's not the gospel of the kingdom and we've experienced the trouble of that and so i think it's a healthy critique from the black church to the white church or to the general church in america that you can't disconnect theology from living it out in life otherwise you produce a christianity ism so greg what about then in terms of hypocrisy, what role does the church play or what role should the church play in actually working through that with the people who are involved in those churches? Yeah, that's one actually just really important way that God has blessed us by giving us a means to shut down hypocrisy. Um, Matthew 18 talks about church discipline and that's basically if someone's living an unrepentant sin and so they have sin in their life and it's disconnected from the Bible and you go to them and you say, hey, this is wrong, but they just refuse to listen to you. They refuse to repent. So not they, they're perfect, but they're not repenting. Then you're supposed to go to them with another person in the church and say, hey, we really see this as an issue. You are living an unrepentant sin. This is against God's will for you. And you kind of keep escalating that up the scale with more people. Then eventually it says if someone's just refusing and they're 
living in unrepentant sin, the church is to excommunicate them, basically push them out, treat them as an unbeliever. Um, it has pretty intense words throughout the Bible, hand them over to Satan um, so that you would hopefully save their soul so that they had turned back and repent to God through this yeah. process. And but one thing that's hard is there's a very low, low percentage of churches that practice church discipline in the U.S. And I think that that's in a lot of ways escalated the problem and escalated a lot of the confusion with this issue. And so just as Christians were called to, um, yeah, step in in these areas and when there's not repentance over sin and and confront that and address it lovingly, graciously, um, with humility. But if there is a lack of that, that's going to, I think a lot of maybe the confusion with this issue comes from a lack of church discipline. Yeah. Like if there was more church discipline, there would be more, in a sense, like we're actually dealing with the issues rather than letting them slide under the surface. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think, yeah, it's, if you're, just going on in that sin and no one knows about it or no one's addressing it it's probably has a lot higher likelihood to continue yeah it, i think what's hitting me even right now in this discussion is the idea of even as we talk about hypocrisy i mean i think fundamentally first and foremost for me it's a problem with that i have with myself and that's even what's coming up to this conversation is like, if we act like this is a problem that we only have to deal with other people, like the hypocrites out there, then I'm like, that's not accurate. Like my biggest struggle, and I've said this often, my biggest struggle being uh, a pastor, being in ministry, uh, working with high school students, working with, you know, anyone, my biggest struggle is my own sin. And just like the daily battle it is for me to follow God to live true to my identity in Christ and to understand that. And so I think like to see that first and foremost, and then it is to, yeah, we actually have a responsibility to love and to care for one another as family. And when we see things, we don't just let those slide, but we actually address them and we mm -hmm. do so lovingly and caringly. And I don't know, it's just kind of hitting me as we're going through this discussion. Mark, I do agree with you that my greatest struggle with hypocrisy is within myself and seeing that battle in my life back to what greg was saying about this church discipline side of it i think it's interesting that the wolves and sheep's clothing is always talking about the false prophets the false teachers in the church and it's not talking about the average christian there's a lot of warnings too all of Christians in the church, but a lot of these passages are specifically talking about leaders, and it says that you're going to know them by their fruits, and it ends up being like a really sad thing and a sorrowful thing to see abuses within the church. I mean, it's all the way back to the New Testament. We see a lot of people swerving from the truth uh, that are upsetting the faith of others we see people that are causing god to be blasphemed people who are just serving their own bellies and glorying in their shame uh, but we see that today too there is the scandal with the catholic church uh, currently the big one that's coming out is with the southern baptist church that was brought up by the houston chronicle and reading that and 
even just reading some of the accounts of different people who have been assaulted by their youth pastor or just different people it's really evil and sorrowful yeah. and it's not limited to the catholic church it's not limited to the southern baptists it's just those are maybe the two that have really broken out but even in that yeah we have to say that a person's known by its fruit and there does have to be even a different standard that we hold people to in a leadership position and I think we want to be about grace and forgiveness and restoration, and that has a place. I mean, the Apostle Paul, before he's knowing Christ, is out approving of the murder of Christians. But I think sometimes in wanting to be about grace and forgiveness, restoration, the church too quickly allows people who are in leadership positions to go against and abuse their spot. And I think that's just wrong. Um, one of the things even this Houston Chronicle article is saying that churches are afraid to even report people that have been sexually abusive because they can get sued. Hmm. And if we're too scared of being sued to let another church know that this person has abused our children, we're disqualifying ourselves from the ability to preach the love of Christ. And I think there's just something there of are we willing to pay the cost to own the abuses that we've done, the abuses that we've been about, to even like hold our leaders to a different standard. Mm. And I think often the church doesn't seem like it's doing that. It's also hard in the actual situation. What do you do? But I think even just how we deal with these things and these abuses when they happen should be a testimony that there's something different about the church than how abuses are handled in the world. Mm -hmm. And... It doesn't always seem that way, and that's a really sorrowful thing. Yeah. Along the lines of repentance for sin, even just like our own sin, and because Mark, you mentioned earlier that, and Greg, you were mentioning this as well, like, oh, we need to be people who repent. Do you guys remember Dad at our dinner table doing that with us? Yeah, I need to uh -huh. apologize for this, this, or this. Yeah. 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 I remember that growing up. Yeah, his dad would come in, and, and we're all having dinner together, and boys, I need to apologize because I've been unkind to your mother, and these are the things that I've done, and that is not the way that I want to treat her, not the way that I should treat her. And there's just something about that that's like, oh, are we willing to own the sin that we do have to repent mm. for it and to come back to the Lord? Because I think part of what happens when you get into these really abusive situations is people at the early steps haven't been repentant. Yeah. And dad and being unkind to mom repenting, that's a big deal early on. Because if you just continue to let these little things go, yeah, you end up sin always takes more of you than you want to give it. Yeah. yeah. And that's one thing that I think that in my life I've had different seasons where I have just let my sin go and I've kind of started mm -hmm. isolating myself and uh, kind of just get to a breaking point of saying, man, I'm living a double life in different ways. And that's always such a terrifying process and harder to cut it off at that point than at the source of it. But it's also just so freeing when you get to that point of saying, 
here's what I'm going through. And you let the grace of God just come in and uh, fill that. It's the most terrifying thing you can do, but it's the most freeing thing you can do to just be totally exposed. And yet what the gospel enables us to do is be totally exposed, totally seen where we're at, forgiven and move forward. But yeah, like, like you were saying, I, I realize if I don't have people in my life that know everything that's going on with me, that know oh, all the sin I have, yeah. that know, um, and yeah, I have a couple of people like that in my life that know everything. And yeah, yeah. but if I don't, I see my own tendency to start hiding, to, to isolate, to live for people's mm-hmm. approval, to, yeah. So it's, yeah. I think that's, again, the antidote of living a life of repentance and openness and humility and trying to cut things off at the source and it's something you just have to fight for and so counterintuitive to my fear of man Greg, i think that's right on i mean i think that's what you and doug and other people have been to me even just the people who i can confess things that are like painful to confess like Uh like difficult like uncomfortable and even to the point where it's like i'm horrified in a sense of sharing this and that's been one of the, honestly, the blessings of both of you guys is I feel like I've been able to confess things that are like deeply embarrassing and painful for me. And then have you guys just like communicate to me the same message of the gospel over and over and over again. And there's times where I like, like I, yeah, like, so, like sort of feel ashamed to the point of like, I would say almost to the point of like death, you know, like of just like total misery, like just this huge mm-hmm. weight and being able to like confess that like I don't know how people survive psychologically if they don't have people who know them like that like it's not healthy it's not good um and I would just say yeah I don't know just even knowing that to to have people in your life who know every painful detail it's so freeing and I think it shows us an image of just the grace of God and I think of some of the people who there's a huge fallout recently with a pastor in Chicago who's, you know, had one of the biggest churches in America. And even if you look at like his story or story of these other pastors who have just had blowouts. And I think Doug, I, I agree with dad where I take the approach where if I look at those situations and say, man, that's never going to be me. Like by God's grace, that will never be my situation. But if I take the approach and just say, I'm beyond that, I'm done. Like, I have no hope. Yeah. You know, like, the moment we think we're beyond something like that, it's like, we just don't have hope. And I think of how can you survive unless you live a constant life of, like, crucifying sin with repentance and bringing it over to the Lord and even to others. And I think of, you know, like, so one of the situations with this pastor in Chicago was, I think there were something like thousands of emails exchanged between him and a woman and I'm like, if if there was one person in his life who knew what was actually going on, like, that stops. Like, that doesn't continue. Like, you can't keep doing that. Like, th- like putting light on something like that, I feel like just, like, instantly kills it. And so mm-hmm. my understanding it was, like, something like hundreds or thousands of emails exchange, like, all these things. And it's like, you you don't really get to a point like that unless you're living unrepentantly and like not actually willing to bring things to the light. And so I think that's even just why, um, even yeah, seeing that in dad's example that dad would growing up constantly be saying, Hey boys, um, I didn't treat your mother this well in this way, or I should have been more patient. And at times it just, it didn't seem like 
big things, but just like that constant open, I'm going to live repentantly. I'm going to live honest. I'm going to live transparently. I'm going to live in humility and continually bring things to the Lord, not allowing an opportunity for this to grow. Um, I mean, that's been, I would say, foundational for each one of us and how we understand repentance and how we treat one another and even what we believe it means to actually be a man, not that you have every single thing together and you can never admit your fault, but you're open, you're honest, you admit your fault and you ask for grace and you keep moving. And I, I have unbelievable respect for dad because of the way he lives that out and models that. And, you know, it's the people who are openly repentant, who I find I respect the most and who I find I trust the most um, because I know I know that they're dealing with the same things we all deal with and they're bringing them forward constantly. Yeah, one, uh, one way I've heard that said is uh, if we have a high standard of the way people should live and something I like about the navigators, we're really into things like scripture memory and going deep in your walk with God and deep in the word of God and um, making disciples. And that's those are all awesome things. But it, if we don't model also repentance in our own lives, we're going to crush people um, with a burden they can't bear. But when we model repentance in our own need for the grace of God, and we understand God's grace. There's nothing too much that God could ever ask us because our whole life is just a reflection of his grace. But yeah. as leaders, if we don't model walking and repentance, we will crush those under us. Yeah. Yeah. Because we've talked a lot about repentance. Martin Luther said that the whole of the Christian life is one of repentance. And if we see that the greatest commandments are to love the Lord with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and the second is like it to love our neighbor as ourselves. Uh, there's never been a single moment where I've perfectly done that or that I haven't needed Christ in my life. Even my best moments. Can I say it's with absolutely everything in me that I've loved the Lord? Um, not for a whole day. Yeah, <laughs> but, yeah. And even just thinking, what is the call to be a Christian? Is the call have faith in Jesus, pray a prayer and you're good? Or is it, if anyone must would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. Whoever loves his life must lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Do we say as the Christian message, it is one of a total life following Christ, one of joy, one of hope, one of peace in his name, but one of, absolute lordship of christ that he is our savior and our lord and i think one of the issues that we've got in the u.s that you mentioned greg is a lot of times people can look at their parents who go to church call themselves christians but never really lived it out and the reality is if someone has said that they're a christian and it makes no difference in their life why would you want that in your own life? Yeah. <laughs> if you see something that you recognize as just an empty form of someone going to church, calling themselves a Christian, but really they're living for something else as their greatest good and treasure, uh, the next generation doesn't buy into that. And I think that's even part of why we call this living theology is we do believe these things, but also they're to be lived out in our lives. That Jesus isn't our savior and then we do whatever we want as our own lords but jesus is both savior and lord and for some reason in the u.s there's a sense of 
Jesus can be my savior without being my Lord. A lot of times, even college students will talk about that. Like Jesus became my savior when I was 12, but he wasn't my Lord until 20. But you can't divide Christ up like that. Because maybe he was your savior genuinely and you just grew in following him as Lord in college. But it might be that you just confessed him. But in the same way that even the demons confess that Jesus is God and shudder. And I think we can make the sinner's prayer this whole thing of all you have to do is pray and believe and then you're good it back in the 80s and 90s there was this idea that you could be a carnal christian and we don't use that term now but the basic idea was you pray this prayer you genuinely have faith in the lord but it makes no difference in your life and my favorite theologian um, sinclair ferguson or at least my favorite living theologian, Sinclair Ferguson, was saying, wait, no, surely no one believes that. And he's the guy in Scotland. But then somebody was saying, well, in America, they believe that. It's like, huh, how could, how could they possibly believe that? And there's something about our culture that has got us to the point where you can believe, oh, I can have Jesus as my savior, but have it make no difference in my life. But then you read First John and Hebrews and the Sermon on the Mount and so many things that Jesus says. And if it's making no difference in your life, it's not Christianity. Yeah, I think interesting, Doug, is like you're saying, you can't divide Jesus and you get part of Jesus, but not the whole of who Jesus is. Mm-hmm. And I, I started reading the book, The Whole Christ, um, by Sinclair Ferguson, which is so good. And that's a lot of what he's talking about and yeah. how you get all of Jesus in the gospel. But even there, I think of, man, what does it mean to have Jesus as your savior? Like, what does it mean to be saved? And I think we've often made that something of, yeah, I'm, I'm saved from sin, but to live in sin. But that's that's like, that doesn't really make sense. It's like you're saved from sin to know and experience God. And if there's not knowing and experiencing God, then what does it mean to be saved from your sin? Like, aren't you supposed to be brought from something, your sin to something? Which doesn't mean you have everything perfect, but isn't there a real experience of knowing God? You've given an illustration, Doug, about um, a satellite with that, haven't you? About this idea of the end of the gospel is that we are actually meant to know and experience God. Yeah, I've compared it to a satellite or a space shuttle. But if we think about like a satellite, the purpose of a satellite is not its component parts or it's not even its um, imaging. It's not the lens. It's not the camera, but it's so that we can see the depths of space. So the Hubble telescope, we're not primarily concerned about its mechanics although its mechanics are absolutely necessary and astounding and make us think really highly of the engineers that put the thing together and got it out into space but the reason for the hubble telescope is not its component parts but that we might see the depth and the glory of the universe so we can look into the deepest darkest parts of space and find that it's filled with universes not universes with galaxies and black holes and stars and just be amazed by all of these things or a space shuttle it's astounding that this shuttle can take off from the earth and reach the moon um but the goal of the shuttle is not 
to be something that's able to get up into the sky, but that we can reach the moon, that we can go and explore the solar system, that we can go beyond the goal of a astronaut's um, space outfit, whatever it's called, um, is not so it can have some unique fabric or whatever, but so they can live out in the depths of space so that they can walk on the moon there's something beyond just the component parts that are important for the space shuttle, for the satellite, for the spacesuit. It's like for a purpose. And I think in a similar way, we can make all of the gospel about how do we get forgiven and we can focus strictly on justification which is crucial and it shows us the glory of god we need to remind ourselves daily of the fact that we are saved by grace through faith in christ but the goal of justification is something else justification is a means to the end of relationship with god being his people on this earth for all time living in harmony with one another and with God to his glory so we might enjoy him forever and just like a the Hubble telescope is not primarily about its mechanics but about the depth of the universe the gospel is not just so that we don't go to hell or so that we can get this declared right by God's spot but that we might be his children walk in relationship with him forever and the reality is justification, how the component parts of our salvation work are astounding because they help us know and love God forever. But the goal is not just this declaration of righteousness, which is absolutely necessary, but to walk in relationship with the Lord, to be with him forever. This is the point that John Piper makes in the introduction of his book, God is the Gospel, yeah. that the good news of the gospel is that we are in relationship with God forever. He himself is the greatest, highest, most decisive good and end, relating with Christ, seeing the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ for all time and being transformed to be like him. Apart from Christ, heaven is not good news, ultimately. Heaven is good news because Christ is there and we're with him. And so to think oh, you can be a Christian without Jesus as Lord, is to be a Christian without Christ. It's not Christianity. Hmm. So how this comes back to hypocrisy is, if you think that salvation, all of this is just about not getting condemned for your sin, just about being in an okay spot, but there's no love for the Lord, uh, we've made the gospel into just some mechanism that's disconnected from life. And ultimately disconnected from the purpose that God has, which is to redeem us in his image so that we can bear his image, bear his glory on the earth and walk in relationship with him forever. Thanks for joining us for this episode. We hope it's of encouragement to you and that you join us next time for another discussion. The music excerpts for this podcast come from the song Enthusiast by Tours, which is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution license. More information can be found in the show notes.